0: from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain." for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We are now in the middle of our five-week series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul's epistle to the church that he planted in the city of Thessalonica, and you may have noticed that we actually began today's reading, and if you were with us two weeks ago, we began that reading with an account from the book of Acts. One of the great joys of reading the New Testament over time is an experience in which you see which parts of the New Testament relate to each other in time. There's a way to read the New Testament that is just book order, and there's another way to read the New Testament and to see where everything is connected and interleaved. Uh, one of my great joys is to think about what First John or uh, John in his epistles, First, Second, and Third John, says to the various churches, understanding that he was an elder at Ephesus before his exile, and and just to see how themes in John's epistles even relate to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And so, I thought it would be fitting for us to remember from Acts what has taken place in the Thessalonian church, that as Paul and Silas mention both at the end of chapter 2 and here at the beginning of chapter 3, how they were torn away from the city of Thessalonica, and they were ripped away from these new baby Christians, as it were, and, and how their hearts were grieved over this, and and therefore this communion which they are thanking the Thessalonians for, or rather thanking God for, that's at work in the Thessalonians, is a a true miracle of the grace of God. After just a few short weeks, what Paul had planted then started to grow without him. And it's a wonderful reminder. And so the theme of this passage is that even though there be deep, troubling afflictions, our God is able to cause his people to abound in love and to abound in holiness towards one another, that we would be his holy people. As Paul, as we're gonna see at the end of today's message, Paul is making an appeal to God, but addressing the Thessalonians that they would abound in love for one another, and that would be an expression of the holiness which God has called them to live in. So to that end, I want to look at three main ideas from this passage. First is suffering and affliction. That Paul, as he's writing this letter, this is the main theme for him. He wants to encourage the Thessalonians that they would remain steadfast in the light of the persecution which was coming upon them unto the day of the Lord. That is, there was a unique time and a unique pressure that was taking place in the Thessalonian culture that the wider world around them was in the throes of upheaval as the Roman Empire was decaying and Christianity was changing the world as we see from the the Jews' appeal that these men have changed the world or they've upset the world. And this day of the Lord that Paul is talking about, about the final day of the Lord, but also understand that there's coming a time very soon after Paul writes where the Jews will be judged in the land of Israel. And so we we understand that Paul is wanting to encourage his people. He knows that throughout the Mediterranean Empire, there will likely be a cultural backlash of Jews, unbelieving Jews, against the church in all places. And history does actually bear this out. This is a very... Uh, Not often emphasized part of the New Testament, but after the destruction of Jerusalem in 68 to 70 AD, throughout the Mediterranean Empire, the strife between the Jews and the Christians exploded. And so Paul is writing to encourage these Christians to be faithful to the end. And for us who have these letters, that also is an encouragement to be faithful to the end of all things when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish the consummate kingdom. And so Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is written to encourage them. It's written to encourage them to be persevering in serving God even as they face deep affliction and suffering. We remember, if you, were, if you were here last week, you may remember in the prior chapter, Paul had just reminded the Thessalonians of his pure motives for preaching of the gospel. He says, you know that we did not come in pretense or in falsehood. You didn't, we didn't come in vain Impulses. We didn't want to be looking great among you, but rather we came to preach the gospel to you. Paul, having just been beaten before he comes to Thessalonica, isn't there to have the ego wounds licked. No, he rather says he has great confidence in God to bring about a transformation Paul and his entire team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, the rest who traveled with him, demonstrated extreme love for the Thessalonians. And so in the prior chapter, chapter 2, Paul reminds them of his love for them. And now in this chapter, he thanks God for the communion which is in that church as they return that love to the apostolic team. Paul, as you may remember, described himself as a father or as a mother. And this is the sort of imagery that he's using. He's saying, just like a father or mother takes care of of an infant or a newborn, so also we were tender with you. We we loved you. We exhorted you. We encouraged you. We fed you. We protected you from cold and from danger and from damage. And this is This love that Paul has given, Paul and his team have given to the Thessalonians has now by God's grace been reciprocated back and the Thessalonians being a true work of God are now responding to God's grace. Now at this point, Paul expresses how like faithful children, the Thessalonians are emulating the apostles. The apostles first have loved them and now by God's grace, they are loving him. The Thessalonians are emulating the apostles by, as we saw, persevering through affliction, receiving the word and affliction with joy, that they chose to fight for joy in the midst of affliction. Previously, we have heard the marks of godly Christian ministers, and now in this chapter, we see the godly marks of a congregation. And so Paul then encourages these Thessalonians and says that he constantly is thanking God for them. And then at the final part of part of this chapter, he then prays to God while addressing the Thessalonians. This twofold emphasis in his language is so beautiful because it tells us what we ought to expect or, or rather how we ought to think about one another, that we are petitioning God to do something even while we are speaking to our brothers and sisters, so like a father who was estranged from his children, Paul is deeply grieved at having been torn away, as he says at the end of chapter two that we saw last week, he was torn away from the Thessalonians. You may remember Paul was beaten before he left and fled to Thessalonia. And essentially, Paul's logic was this, I think we've got a few days until they get here. Let's begin to preach the gospel. And so for three whole weeks, Paul and his team are in the synagogue every Sabbath, and they are arguing about the Christ being Jesus, the Messiah. And they are proving from the scriptures, the Old Testament, that Jesus had to suffer, that he had to be raised from the dead, and that that work of Jesus Christ is now the means by which his new redeemed people is being formed. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. He is the fulfillment of all of the blessings of God given to the patriarchs and every nation. And through this new man, Jesus Christ, God is forming a new people. And so Paul was reasoning with them from the scriptures for three weeks. I want you to consider the shortness of the time as Paul with deep love begins to see the Holy Spirit working in this young, small, prototype congregation in embryonic form. After three weeks, the Jews have showed up again and stirred, the unbelieving ones have stirred up a crowd and they force him out of Thessalonica. And then he goes to Berea, as we heard in this reading. And then after the Thessalonican unbelievers hear that he's in Berea, they come and run after him. They're chasing him down. What we heard from Luke's account in Acts is reiterated by Paul directly to themselves, to the Thessalonians. Here, as in all of Paul's epistles, he is is extremely quick to express his love to his people. It's important as ministers of the gospel, as fathers and mothers of children, that we learn how to speak to our people, to our children, like the apostles demonstrate. They're not removing or they're they're not stingy with words of affection. Paul is willing to express his love. As we saw last two weeks, were there problems in Thessalonica? Absolutely. Did he love them greatly? Yes. Did he risk or did he refrain from speaking words of love even because they were not fully mature? No, absolutely not. Paul is quick to express his godly confidence that that the Lord Jesus Christ is forming this people, that the Holy Spirit is truly among them. Though Paul had wished to see him, as we're about to see in this next verse, Paul was willing instead to risk personal isolation so that he would know the Thessalonians are doing well. Think about this. Again, go back to that imagery that Paul uses as a father or a mother. In time of famine, the father or the mother will often refuse to eat so that their children can eat. This is different in a plane when when the oxygen masks come down. It's important that you put your mask on first so that you're able to help your children. There's a time where putting your children first will destroy you. And there is a time where putting yourself first, in a sense, to enable love for another is vital. And in this passage, Paul runs the spiritual calculus and decides, it's okay, I'll be fine in the city of Athens, I need to send Timothy, I have to know how they're doing. I have to strengthen them in the Lord. He says in verse one, therefore, when we, a team decision could bear it no longer, we were willing, Paul and Silas, were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Though with them for an extremely short period of time, Paul had already warned them that affliction would be coming. Think about if, if you were to organize a, a, a three-week seminar on the gospel, how quickly you would get to suffering. Most of us, because we think incorrectly about the nature of God's word and the power of the spirit to transform, we would put the cost at the end. Paul clearly has put the cost at the beginning. He, all of his hearers knew that if they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and began to follow him, it would cost them everything and it will cost you everything. Paul loved these people and he loved them by properly warning them of the cost of following Jesus even as they were coming to him. The modern strategy of evangelism, which preaches a short, truncated gospel, which aims to convert and to prove the evidence of that conversion by a raising of the hands or a coming down the altar at the end of the service, has no commonality with what Paul was doing. Likewise, with what Christ was doing. The Lord Jesus himself said, if anyone loves father, mother, brother, sister more than me, he is, unwilling, he is unfit to be my disciple. You see, the point of the following of Jesus Christ that is necessary is not just a ticket to get into heaven and escape hell. No, what God intends to do through the gospel is to so cause you as to come to life, as we saw Paul addressed in this very same letter, to turn from idols to God, to serve the living and the true God. That that God is much more interested in transforming lives rather than just changing a final destiny. No, the gospel, if it is the true gospel, demands all and provides all. The gospel empowers, convicts, and delivers. The preaching of the gospel faithfully does these things and therefore, it must include a warning both to the one who receives the gospel and the one who rejects the gospel. The way of the Lord Jesus Christ is an easy yoke. It is the easiest yoke possible, and yet it is still a yoke. The cost of following Jesus Christ is great. The cost of not following Jesus Christ is infinitely greater because there's no reward for not following the Lord Jesus Paul taught Timothy, in in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of them. You, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Likewise, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he went on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So much of modern Christianity has adopted subtle ideas from Buddhism that we need to just empty ourselves and we need to have no desires and we need everything of, of any sort of, Uh, ambition to be removed. No, Jesus is enticing his disciples with a great reward. As Christians, we have to believe if anyone would come to God, he must believe that God is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so these Thessalonians, as Paul is warning them, he's saying, there will be a great affliction that comes against you, but you will have Jesus Christ for all eternity you will know God whereas you had not known God. You will be delivered from idols to serve your creator. You will know your maker in truth, in reality. You will be a real human. That's what Paul is putting forth in the gospel. He wants all of his readers to know that these things never prove that God is against them. He says that these people, these Thessalonians, must not be moved by these afflictions. I think it's important to understand he doesn't mean touched. Will you be touched by these afflictions? Yes. Will you be moved? No, you need not be moved. Paul is warning them the afflictions are coming and God has ordained this. We must not presume as Christians, especially in America, that afflictions will not come. But rather, we should ready our hearts by seeing God as our great reward. The only way that we can joyfully accept the plundering of our property is if we understand that we have a far greater reward in abiding treasure in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them of his warnings while present with them. He says in verse 4, For when we were with you, we kept telling you, not inserted in one sermon, in three We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul reminds them of his desire for true communion, that their perseverance in the midst of trials would confirm the reality of God's work among them. He says, we wanted to make sure that you were not tempted by the tempter, that you didn't give in to temptation. Otherwise, that would prove that we were not really effective among you, but that somehow we had worked in vain or we had worked to no point or no, no, no fruit. Here, the tempter does not seek to entertain them with false pleasures, but rather with false fears. The tempter here is tempting them with despair in the light of persecution, with despair in the light of trials, with sorrow, sorrow so deep that they be moved away from Jesus Christ by these afflictions. We often think that temptations are limited just to elicit pleasures, especially as young people in this culture with the rampant, prevailing, pervasive nature of sexual immorality and its selling and its promotion in the culture, we often think that temptations are do not taste, do not touch, do not, ent- do not engage in. We, we take wrong views of certain domains of life. We think that they are completely illicit rather than understanding that they are the devil's twisting of a good thing in covenant bounds and with protections. And so we often take a view of temptation that temptation is merely an enticing of an appetite like sexual desire or food or entertainment or gossip or, or slander. We often forget that temptation does not just relate to things that we shouldn't do that are external to us. Temptation most often is directed at what we think about God and what we think about the nature of sin and the nature of the battle. Here, Paul is saying he was afraid that the tempter had tempted them with a temptation. What was the temptation? To return back to living however they want? No, the temptation for the Thessalonians was to look at the suffering around them and to interpret it as proof that God had abandoned them and had left them up to just whims and chances. No, Paul reminds them this suffering was coming. We knew it was coming. God has ordained this suffering. This is the temptation of trusting God in the midst of suffering. If God has not ordained this suffering, perhaps this suffering is more than I can bear. But on the other hand, if we know that suffering is ordained by God, and because it's ordained by God, it is therefore limited by God, then we know that we are not just on the sea of chance. We are in God's hand itself. Our Father will not allow ourselves to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. If the enemy had convinced the Thessalonians to abandon Christ because of these temptations, or to doubt God's providence in the midst of these temptations, so as to fear that God would would abandon them, then the tempter would have succeeded, and ultimately Paul's labors would come to nothing. What he means by moved again is not touched or disturbed. It's okay in the midst of suffering to grieve and to mourn and to be to be afflicted by the afflictions. What's not okay is to allow yourself to be moved away from Christ, to come to the thought that following Christ is not worth it because of these sufferings. That's what Paul is saying would have proved their fruit as vain. He he's saying, I want you Thessalonians to understand that these things are coming so that when they come, you wouldn't be surprised. And therefore, he encourages them. He sends Timothy, therefore, to strengthen them and to exhort them. Timothy is not just coming to check upon them. He's not just taking their temperature. No, Paul and Silas decided we can stay here at Athens. We probably won't be damaged by the unbelieving Jews because Athens is controlled by the Greeks for the most part. And they currently aren't fighting us. We can wait here while Timothy goes will be left alone so that they can be strengthened. This is the apostolic heart. This is what a pastoral ministry is really about. It's about loving God's people so that they could be strengthened and exhorted and equipped. Timothy goes in order to exhort them and to encourage them, not just to check in on them. And therefore, this tells us about the nature of what it means to be a Christian in God's people. We need Timothy to show up. We need Timothy to ask painful questions and to get answers and to open up to the Timothys in life and to tell them how we're truly doing so that they would be able to, like a wise doctor, apply the right sorts of medicines and set the bones properly this is what it means to be a Christian in communion with God's people. That's what Paul is praising God for in this church. Timothy brings to the Thessalonians a message which Paul describes as a restoration of life, not just to the Thessalonians, but to him himself. And this message that Paul receives from Timothy explains or rather proves a sharing of mutual life in the fellowship for God. In verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What a wonderful picture of real life in the church of God. Paul and Timothy were willing to be left alone in the city of Athens without the brothers. So they send Timothy to encourage and to exhort and to strengthen the Thessalonians. And when Timothy returns, he brings a message saying, these Thessalonians, yeah, there are problems, but they're doing good. They're doing well. The Holy Spirit is working among them. And here's how I know. When I showed up, they received me warmly. And they even mentioned while we were talking that they longed to see you and Silas. This is what, t- can you imagine Timothy saying this to Paul? Paul, before Timothy arrives, is alone. He is fearful in a godly fear for their sake, just as a father or a mother would fear an, an infant who had been snatched away from them. And Paul hears his faithful fellow worker in the gospel, Timothy, tell them, yeah, there's a true work of God's love among them. And Paul knows, yes, this is a holy people. This is a congregation of Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians, as we saw in last chapter and this chapter, rightly received not just the gospel, but those who the gospel has also redeemed. This is why it's so important as Christians in the modern era that we learn how to live with other Christians who may not be from our own denomination or sect or, or focus. And we learn to live in love with those who God has really brought to his people. The Thessalonians received God's word, not as God's word directly, but as mediated through Paul. And they didn't only receive the gospel, they received the apostles as well. Now, does this mean that... Ministers of the gospel never err, that they are held to the same standard as the Holy Spirit himself? No, it doesn't mean that. Paul sinned, we know that. Did he sin against the churches? Yes, probably. Do we know the details? No, because love covers a multitude of sins. However, we know that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, being humans, though apostles, though sent by God, had problems, yet the Thessalonians were able to receive them and to hold them in their hearts, and they desired for true communion. They desired that Paul and Silas would be able to return to them. The Thessalonians refused to consider Paul according to his former manner of life, but they received him with great love. If you don't know this, Paul, before he was an apostle, was a deep enemy of the church. He was one who had letters from the Jewish leaders to come and arrest Christians. And he did so successfully. Some of those Christians likely died in persecution or in prison because of Paul's efforts. We know that at the slaying of Stephen, Paul was present. Somewhat, it gives the indication that he's kind of holding the coats at the meeting. He's like an usher at the meeting where they kill Stephen. And yet the Thessalonians, as Timothy reports, have so loved Paul and so recognized the transformation of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life that they long for him to return. They don't just kind of receive him. They receive him very well. By the grace of Christ, those who were enemies with one another, Paul and the churches, are now in the bonds of mutual love and this is what the gospel has come to do. As the body of Christ, therefore, we must receive those who labor in love among us. Test yourselves, brothers and sisters, in this. Paul tells the Corinthians, our heart is wide open toward you, and that in return, the Corinthians, who were at that time when Paul wrote to the To the Corinthians, they were rejecting Paul's authority. He says to them, as a father to his children, you must widen your hearts also to us. Remembering God's servants kindly requires us as Christians to keep short accounts and to forgive quickly. Will your pastor sin against you in the church? Yes, and amen. (laughs) Maybe not the amen part, he will. Does this mean that you are able to persist in not remembering them kindly? No. We have to, as Christians, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that we forgive seven times 70 times. And the point of seven times 70 times, or 70 times seven, is this, that if you make it to 490, or if you don't forgive on the 491st time, then you are missing the point entirely. For those who truly repent, forgiveness and restoration is always possible in God's church, but it requires us as God's people, both individually and corporately, to forgive quickly. If the thought of one of God's people seems odious or painful to you, then you are harboring bitterness against them. I want to state that again. As as a physician of hearts, the Lord Jesus gives us tests. And one of the tests is this, if the thought of one of God's people seems odious, it seems offensive, it seems painful to you, then you are harboring bitterness. Now, does this mean that all memories of those who wound us are, are just pacified and, and malified until they don't seem painful? No, that, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, if you are unwilling to let that restoration take place, then you are harboring bitterness. We have to use wisdom when we enter into restoration. We do not require wisdom to grant forgiveness. And in fact, it is the case, as as Jesus taught in the parable of the, the two debtors, that unless we forgive everyone from our hearts, we will never get out of prison. The only remedy For restored community in the church, even for persisting in church fellowship with one another, the only strategy is daily forgiveness over those who offend us. It is the only way, brothers and sisters. And therefore, that forgiveness, which must be daily and it must be quick, is the grounds for true restored communion. The Hebrew writer commands in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. John Gray, Anvesh Perumala are about to become those who will give an account for your souls. So the Hebrew writer goes on to say this, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. If you were here at Friday Night Prayer, you may remember I closed that night explaining that the joy of God's ministers in the people of God becomes the joy of the people of God. Because, as we're going to see in this passage, Christian fellowship, Christian communion is like pouring water between glasses while the faucet is still running. It constantly is overflowing to spill over because there's so much abundant joy that as Christians we take joy in the true work of God working in the other and we are able for that other's joy to become our joy and so the Hebrew writer says let these leaders do this with joy otherwise you wouldn't get anything from it but as it is if they do it with joy their joy will become your joy so obey in joy Obeying a leader, therefore, in Christian life is likely impossible if you are harboring bitterness against them. The reason I say likely is the Holy Spirit can do amazing things. But if you are currently harboring bitterness against one of God's leaders, you cannot obey them because obedience proceeds from faith and love. And you cannot love if you still harbor bitterness. Verse eight, Paul goes on to describe the Thessalonians, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Do you see this communion? This is what communion is. It is mutual indwelling of life. That Paul is saying, because Timothy has come and told us that you are abounding in love for one another and you want us to come back, we know that God is really at work in you because you cannot love the brothers if you are of the devil. And so Paul is saying, for now we live we have been revived by Timothy's words if we have heard that you're standing fast in the Lord. He goes on to say, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? And look, look here it is. For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. This is what Christian communion is, not just ministers to congregations, but also brothers and sisters towards one another for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. You see, there's a measure of the deposit of God in Paul and Silas, which the Thessalonians need. And therefore, Paul says, I'm eager to return because I need to make sure that you are growing and you're being strengthened. And I have something for you Thessalonians to give. And therefore, when he hears of the kind reception that Timothy got and that the Thessalonians want Paul and Silas to return, then he knows, yes, there really is life here. It is not just the kind of life that you might see in the middle of winter as you scratch the bark on a tree and see green. No, this is full-fledged, leaves on the tree, fruit budding. This is full love in God's people. Paul then receives Timothy's report confirming that they're truly walking in the faith because holiness consists in love for one another. Holiness is not only love for one another, but holiness requires love for one another. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be holy before God if you do not love the brothers. This news was a great comfort to Paul. Likewise, as John wrote in his third epistle, third John verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Was Paul their parent? Yes. Was John their parent? Yes. Are we as, as those who minister among God's people supposed to relate to God's people as our own children? Yes. Are we supposed to, as God's people, relate to our leaders as our kind father and mother? Yes. Now, is this hard? Yes, it absolutely is. Because some of us have had terrible parents. But the gospel calls us to have that aspect of life restored by Jesus Christ. As we need direction, as people in God's world, we need direction from those who are older and wiser in the Lord. And therefore, we must receive his leaders. For Paul, the knowledge of their life in Christ refreshes his. I want you to think about that. Have you ever done this? As I mentioned a minute ago, the faucet's running and you're pouring water from one glass to the other, such that both glasses are constantly being filled. And because the faucet's on, the water's just going everywhere. This is what Paul is saying. Your life has refreshed my life. And we feel joy in your sake because we know that you are finding joy in God. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful comfort. As Paul expounds on the impossibility of giving adequate thanks to the Father, we learn something about the nature of joy in the Christian faith. Paul and his team feel joy in God in the knowledge of the Thessalonians' joy in God. Let me say that again because this is, this is somewhat of a tricky idea for us because we, as people in modern American culture who are constantly advertised to, constantly told that we need to satisfy our appetites and our longings and our desires to be great, we have a tough time understanding what Paul is saying. We learn in our world today, because it is marred by sin, that we must be satisfied, that our appetites must be answered, that we must be gratified and seen as great. And Paul says the way to true joy is to take joy in the joy of another. That's what being a new creation in Christ is all about. This is the nature of true Christian communion, taking joy in the joy of another. Test yourself in this. Whenever you receive good news about someone else, if you do it with jealousy or with accusation in your heart, are you responding in Christ? Or are you responding according to the flesh? If we ever hear good news that someone has been promoted or has started memorizing a passage of the Bible successfully or has repented over sin or has gotten married or has news of an expectant child... If we hear these good things in others and we receive them with jealousy, accusation, envy, greed, then we are hearing with the ears of the enemy. We are not hearing with new ears. We're not seeing with new eyes. No, we should recognize if God is doing something great in them, then I should take joy in their joy. I'm glad that John Gray had to step out for for this moment because I'm about to praise him. I have never told John Gray good news and not heard these exact words in this exact tone. That's great. (laughs) He is a wonderful example of what it means to take joy in the other's joy. And this cannot happen if there is not true communion. This is the command to Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because their joy becomes our joy. And this is how the Holy Spirit multiplies the grace of God in our lives. It is that as he works in one person or a group of people or even in a church, that as that work begins to bear fruit, that that fruit is able to be tasted by all. If we rejoice with those who rejoice, we are multiplying God's glory because we are receiving the good gift of another through them. So therefore, because Paul knows that these Thessalonians are truly believers and that their work among them has borne fruit, Paul then closes this section of the letter in a way that is fitting for closing every issue. Paul wants to see them, but he can't because he knows that the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica would stir back up and he has a task somewhere else at the time of the writing of this letter. And therefore, Paul commends this issue to God. He commits it to God. It's interesting to note, as we turn to these verses in a second, that Paul's written prayer, don't be afraid of written prayers, Paul's written prayer both communicates love to the Thessalonians and teaches us about the nature of love and holiness. We've been seeing it before in this epistle, but now Paul is going to make it explicitly clear. It's also important to notice, as we're about to see in these words, that Paul is addressing God, or rather, he's petitioning God, but he's addressing the Thessalonians. And the reason I, I highlight this is because this is the nature, or should be the nature, of godly conversation in the church. That as we speak with one another, we should imitate Paul in his manner and in his, in his, in his approach. That we should speak with one another, commending them to the grace of God while at the same time praying. This is one of the ways that we can pray without ceasing. Look at, look at the pronouns that he uses. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. This is a prayer and yet he's addressing the Thessalonians. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I want to just look really briefly. May you abound in love for one another so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are here, both addressed in this prayer, as able to cause impossible things to happen. If you've ever spent time with or been evangelized by a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Christadelphian, you may have been told by them that Jesus Christ is not eternally God. And in fact, there was a study which was put out the last week, the findings of which said that about 80% of the evangelical church agrees with the statement that Jesus Christ is the first and greatest of all the creations of God. And brothers and sisters, that is a damnable heresy. Jesus Christ was not created. And the reason I want to emphasize this is because upon hearing that statistic, I cannot help but tell you that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And he became a man by taking on flesh, he did not begin to exist at the beginning of creation. He was the one through whom creation took place. And therefore, I want to put my finger on this idea that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are addressed by Paul in this prayer as able to cause impossible things to happen, which would otherwise not happen if they refused to pray. God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are perfectly God. And therefore, Paul addresses his prayer that God would cause, that the Father and the Son would cause the love of God, probably referring to the Spirit, to be abounding in the Thessalonian church. This is a fully Trinitarian prayer. Likewise, not only is God able to do impossible things, but in this context, Paul is saying that God is able to make impossible things not just in the world happen, but in the hearts and minds of people. God is able to cause Paul and his team to be able to return to Thessalonica, pacifying the mobbing crowds and protecting them along the way. He says, now may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And then he goes on to say that God is able to make the Thessalonians increase in love toward each other and toward all people. All of God's word contains prohibitions and promises which must be obeyed by faith. They can't be obeyed any other way. And therefore, God himself by his spirit is the one who enables us to believe and obey. As we see in Paul's words that God would cause our way or direct our way to you and that God would make you abound in love. Isn't that a wonderful way to describe what God does in his people? Yes, we have to hear God's word. All of God's word contains prohibitions and promises that have to be obeyed by faith. But how do we obey by faith? We obey by faith By hearing God's word and the Holy Spirit grants us grace in the moment. That as we hear God's word and believe by faith, we are able to respond. However... It is God who makes us possible to respond to his word. It is his Holy Spirit which encourages us and moves upon us to believe. He not only is the one who makes us a new creation, but after being new creations, after becoming new creations, he is the one who works in our hearts. He brings God's word to fruit. In our lives, the seed of God's word, which is implanted in our heart, must root and grow, and it is God who causes the growth. Therefore, we ought to imitate Paul in our manner of prayer. Paul says, Now may our God, may God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ make you abound in love. If you are despairing in one area of your life, you're not getting victory over an area of sin, you're not understanding part of the word. Pray in this way, God, make me love you. It is appropriate to pray desperate prayers, God, make me understand this passage. God, help me to be able to. Give me the willingness to love these people. And that's exactly how Paul prays. Through Paul's prayer, love of one's neighbor is demonstrated here as an essential part or an essential component of holiness. May he he make you abound in love so that he may present you blameless in holiness or established in holiness. As John wrote in his first epistle in chapter two, verse nine, he said, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And this is why Paul says, it's so important that you be presented holy at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I want God to cause love to abound in you, Thessalonians, so that you would love one another so that there would not be a schizophrenic bride. What do I mean by that? The bride of Christ is one church, a wonderful thing to remember on Reformation Day. There is only one people of God. Are we divided and are we experiencing fractions, factions? Are we, are we having trouble reconciling? Yes and amen. These problems are too great for any one of us. However, it, doesn't be, it, it is not our responsibility to repair all divisions in the church. Rather, we must do our part in the congregations that we know and are a part of that we walk in love with the brothers. As John said, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So the Lord Jesus is active, as we see in this prayer, among the hearts of His people, preparing them for holiness, that His bride would be ready for His return. One of my favorite quotes from a minister um, that I that I, I love this quote. There is a big difference from be, uh, between being rescued from a burning building and getting picked up for your wedding. There's a big difference. And that's exactly the picture that Paul is praying, that that at the Lord Jesus Christ's return, when the consummate kingdom is about to arrive, at the marriage supper of the lamb being fully finished, that, that Paul is wanting these Thessalonians to be part of this bride, that love would abound in them. So this is our aim this morning, that being called to live in holy love for one another, let us petition God, let's join Paul in his prayer to remove all bitterness among us from our fellow saints and any despair in the face of suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are able to cause us to abound in love for one another. That though our sins and rebellions against you be great, though they be rooted in in terrible places in us, by your grace, we can become new creations in Christ and that your word can bear fruit And that your spirit can cause us to come to love one another and to receive not only apostles and ministers of the gospel, but even brothers and sisters who are young in the faith. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and that you would truly be working among us. We ask that you would, throughout all places, purify your bride, that you would greatly reform the church in in our world today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.